0: friends and welcome back to the Kokoro Movement Podcast. On this episode, I am happy to introduce my friend and my mentor, Joseph Schwartz. He is a massage therapist based out of Denver, Colorado, and he is the founder of Dynamic Neuromuscular Assessment. We had a great conversation. I'm just going to jump right into it. Here we go.
1: Uh, some online projects I'm doing I've got a free online assessment course that is available on um, courses.dna-assessment.com okay Um, this Friday I'm going to be um, having a two hour mini seminar on nervous system response and redefining manual muscle testing Yeah, this is this is that piece that um, that we're not given until we get to courses like PDTR. Yeah, Um, it's very important to understand how our nervous system creates these false positives and false negatives in our assessment. Yeah, Um, I'm also parsing out DNA so that it will become an online course. Nice. And and that's happening. uh, I, I hope to have that released by the summer. Okay. There's qu- there's several pieces and logistics in it, including being able to get models to demonstrate the work. Right. Um, I'm also working on a master's movement program for the five primary kinetic chains that includes six kinetic chains. And I use the word kinetic chains twice because first, the primary kinetic change, are kinetic change on how muscles link together to create synergistic movement. Then the next level of kinetic change is when synergistic movement links together and creates another type of kinetic change. So there's really two different kinetic chains.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. So um, we're going to, Jump into your uh, background here a little bit because uh, for the people that don't know, which is everybody, this is round two, because our first interview just got lost in the ether somewhere, couldn't find it. So um, yeah, we're we're gonna get into it. But um, you know, I've been using um, the the concept of limbic resonance with those um, online assessments, and it works really well. And you know, then that just leads me to believe like i don't know what it leads me to believe actually it's it's just astounding and every time i do this uh this dna stuff the 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 dynamic neuromuscular assessment stuff on people like there's certain clients that walk out of my office and afterwards i'm like how the hell did joseph figure this shit out it is insane like there's people like when you get a um a there's so when you hit that that specific time frame that created this association to an event that is causing their pain and you nail the exact year and time that it happened they're just like excuse me and i'm like (laughs) and they're just like oh well that's when this happened and i'm like cool so let's unpack that because that's what's going on you know what i mean and that's where all of your pain symptoms are coming from. And I even had one client recently, um, who, you know, I meant, I mentioned the, um, the exact year and then I got it down to the exact month and she couldn't figure it out. And then on her way out, she was like, Oh, this was the event. And then I was like, well, how do you feel? She's like, ah, oh, I feel so much better. And I'm like, okay, there you go. <laughs> it's just, it makes you seem, it's, it's just bananas. So let's, uh, let's uh, get to your backstory and then get to how you started to kind of figure all this stuff out.
1: Well, I, um, my backstory is this. In 1985, I took a climbing, uh, I had a climbing incident where I broke my talus in a long fall. And that led me in a process of, um, needing to get rehab. Yeah. And, um, in that rehab, one of the doctors that I was working with used manual muscle testing as one of the benchmarks to establish progress in my rehab process. At the time. I didn't understand the significance of that. You know, hindsight's always true. <clears throat> Several years later, I was introduced to the work of Jocelyn Olivier, who is um, uh, the founder of Alive and Well Institute of Conscious Body Work, which incidentally is the school that David Weinstock also worked at. And Jocelyn and David co-taught a course called um they called it level three they didn't actually even have a name for it and basically jocelyn had um taken courses in um educational kinesiology touch for health and looked at um the relationship of of reactive muscles which is one of the concepts of dr goodhart um who is the founder of applied kinesiology Essentially, reactive muscles are how muscles are behaving with each other in sequence, where you start to look at the ability of integration. Now, interestingly, some of the premises that reactive muscles were built on, we have now found that they're not true. However, it did give us a launching point to start to look at how our nervous system is responding to movement and this becomes like this big thing it's not so much as that muscles are strong or weak that movement we either have capacity to move or we don't have capacity to move in any particular way it's more so the coping strategies that we have developed the structural adaptations that we have developed related to how those movements are correlating to how our nervous system is responding to those movements. And that's what we learn. And so there is a period of time where I was doing what I would consider straight manual muscle testing. And then I was just hungry for why does this work? I don't get it. You know, it's like, there's, there's gotta be something here. This is like, this seems like magic. This seems like voodoo. And this is what people think, you know, when they have these kinds of AK work done, it's like, there isn't a correlation. How is it grounded in, in our physical experience, this thing that's happening? Well, so much of it is happening on a non-conscious level. In applied kinesiology, there is a process that's called therapy localization. And this is how we can identify a correlation to a a movement coping strategy. I started playing with this. And I started using one of the concepts that Jocelyn taught me, which is about using our intention. And I found that I could use my intention to therapy localize. And that's essentially how this process that I call limbic resonance was born. It started with intention. The intention of our mind is enough in connection with another person's nervous system to have an effect. And this has big ramifications when we start looking at. The therapeutic process because our own stuff, our own structural adaptations, our own pre- preconceived notions, our own um, coping strategies can color the lens as we're working with our client. This is why we talk about in DNA we have to be our own client first because. If our slate is not clear, how are we going to work with our client when those aspects that we haven't dealt with in our own experience are going to be coloring the outcome that we have with our client? This is a form of transference. And so limbic resonance the communication that we have that is virtually infinite becomes a very important piece of how we're connecting with and interacting with our clients.
0: Yeah. And so there's, there's a lot to unpack there because, you know, essentially when you're doing neurological muscle testing you're asking the brain do you know what this is yes or no and is this some type of dysfunction but what you brought to light for me was uh, essentially what's the state of the nervous system sympathetic or parasympathetic and that was really helpful for me because before that I was getting really wonky results like I would test somebody and they'd be they would test strong and I'd be like "Mm, And then I'd test them again somewhere else and they'd be strong there. Mm, What does this mean? Okay, so now they're just strong everywhere. So that doesn't mean, so what does that mean? That means that they're fine then. And so now I got to figure out where this pain in their neck is coming from. You know, but then that's where you brought up the, the concept of false positives. And so, you know, when they're testing strong like that, then to my understanding they're in a sympathetic state and they're just chronic fight or flight, which then starts to make sense, you know, oh, okay. So this person is hypertonic everywhere. So then this is, then you give us strategies and how to help that person tone down the nervous system to where they can start testing normally and then address if it's, um, Associated with the limbic response, or if there's some kind of association with it, and you know, it just goes, it just goes way deeper and way broader than just does this brain understand what the quadratus lumborum is, yes or no?
1: Absolutely, you know, the, and and this is actually probably the most important piece in what I call keeping the container safe, and we'll unpack that a little bit more later. Yeah, but essentially. We need to create a benchmark with the nervous system and how the nervous system is responding. If someone is in a state of sympathetic overload, we're not going to be able to have a conversation with their nervous system because their nervous system is already in a state of vigilance and protection. It's part of our safety coping strategy. So we have to first create a baseline of what is parasympathetic for this person. What is a normal response? Right. And there's a couple of different ways that we can measure that. Now, we've all heard of biofeedback. We've all heard of, um, the sympathetic stress that's measured by heart rate. What's not as common knowledge is that our various mechanoreceptors in our structure will change response, the afferent signals that it's sending to the brain when the, when the peripheral nervous system is in the sympathetic or the parasympathetic. Now, we have to create this established parasympathetic benchmark, which means that these mechanoreceptors should respond in a known way. Right. And if they don't respond that way, then we know that that nervous system in that moment is being sympathetically driven. And this establishes a benchmark. That's our beginning place. If we don't have that as a beginning place, all we're going to be doing is poking at people's coping strategies and driving that sympathetic response up. Instead, what we have to do is we have to deescalate that sympathetic response so that that, person's nervous system is normally responsive. That gives us the place where we can start to look at why their nervous system becomes sympathetically driven. And this is how our movement assessment comes in. What specific movements, what specific thoughts are creating this escalation and sympathetic response? Now, the intrinsic kinetic chain or breathing apparatus really becomes ground zero for this because of the relationship of the diaphragm to the sympathetic nervous system. So the thoracic diaphragm, while it is a striated muscle and it follows all the rules of a striated muscle, It also shares connective tissue with the pericardium in the heart, which is is a smooth muscle, and it's driven by the autonomic nervous system. And so we have a direct correlation with breath and breathing and the autonomic nervous system. And so when we're working with our clients that are sympathetically driven First step is to tone down their nervous system so that we can have a conversation in this parasympathetic mode. Then we have to incrementally challenge the breathing apparatus so that we can get all the the players in respiration able to have this conversation of integrating the movement of breath with the
0: autonomic nervous system. Right, and so, you know, the way that I think about it is the diaphragm is also associated with the startle response, and so, um, you know, there's a, there could be a whole lot going on there, but if somebody has had a traumatic event, then, and, you know, it's there's so much that we do to try and Help people without understanding what's actually going on, right so like you've mentioned before in the couple of classes that i've taken with you there is um, there's this you know breathing is the new go to to get people into a parasympathetic state, and so we focus on diaphragmatic breathing right and so what you've mentioned before is if you are focusing on diaphragmatic breathing, and they're having a limbic response to that, that could actually make them or put them further into a sympathetic response. And it will have the exact opposite effect of what you want. And so, you know, the first time I took this, uh, this uh, DNA course with you, that really helped me um, be able to express the narrative of what hypertonic muscles actually are. You know what I mean? And they're, so they're, they're, they're muscles that are under threat. And so, you know, the unfortunately, within the profession of therapeutic massage, there's this narrative, well, if the muscle's tight, just dig your elbow in there. You're like, no, because that's adding more of a threat response to something that's already threatened. And so, you know, it's all, it all boils down to threat and safety. And how do we make this person feel safe? And how do we decrease threat? And so that's the way that I think about everything in my practice. So if somebody comes in and they're just, well, I have back pain, neck pain, shoulder pain, all the pain. And you're just like, well, you're essentially bracing for impact and you've been doing so for months. And so that's exactly why everything hurts. So what are you bracing for? What's happening? What happened a couple months ago that triggered this response to where you have become in a protection mode and you can't get out of it? So let's talk about that. And So that's one of those things that um, I was addressing with uh, my last online client is, hey, so your shoulder's been hurting for three months. What happened then? Well, I was just driving. That's not true. There was an event that happened that day that triggered this response. And it's this response was already there. And so you have created this event in your head. And every time there's an event that's similar, it triggers this response because nobody's ever addressed what the underlying cause of this shoulder pain is.
1: That's exactly it. Um... When we start thinking about addressing causation and this relationship of safety or parasympathetic and threat sympathetic, how we have that conversation so we can evaluate why a person has the symptoms that they have. We call that the correlation. It's, it's really important to recognize this because we can unknowingly be driving that threat response by doing something innocuous with good intention. Like, for example, somebody that has had a high-level fear response or startle response where they take that sharp inhalation to brace and protect their structure. Every time the body takes that kind of full diaphragmatic, sharp inhalation to arm and protect, that association in memory is stimulating. So if somebody has that, and with good intention, we're teaching them a breathing exercise such as 90-90, hand on abdomen, you know, feel the intra-abdominal pressure build using diaphragmatic breath, well, in an integrated breathing apparatus, that is absolutely appropriate but for someone that has had this kind of stalled response that is unresolved that is going to just continue to stimulate that response and so this is this is like the elephant in the room yeah because we can with good intention be giving our client a movement protocol that I'm gonna use the word should, should be good for mind, body, spirit. However, if their coping strategy is such that that movement creates a threat, all we are doing is reinforcing that threat. This is one of the things that we see in traditional physical therapy. People are given an exercise for a particular symptom. Right. Some people get better. Other people don't. What's the difference? Why don't people get better? It's because that movement is threatening their nervous system and their nervous system will not have the capacity to learn how to optimally organize to respond to that movement. Right. Until you clear the, the, the reason why they can't.
0: Why is that coping strategy in place? Right. And so, and for a lot of people, that coping strategy is incredibly important for them because this is something that you mentioned in their class, like that, that coping strategy, that event has become a pillar of who they are as a person. And so you can't just yank that pillar out from underneath them. That's a load bearing structure. And so when you do, then the whole building could become crumbling down. And then you won't know what to do. And so there's some people that need that hip pain. They need that low back pain. They need it. And so that's where um, that was a really important part of that course was you have to to establish that it's safer or safe to clear that. It's safe to get rid of that pain or whatever's causing it. You can't just go in there and get rid of it and so that's another common narrative amongst the massage therapy profession is oh we just go in and hammer it we just get rid of it right on and the same thing with like physical therapy or whatever it is so um and the other thing that i wanted to say uh, is we as humans need borders for things. We need to separate things out. That's how we feel better about our understanding of the way things work. So, you know, the, the further I get into my profession, the more I understand that it's all the same stuff. It's the person standing in front of you. It's not a ligament. It's not a muscle. It's not a brain. It's not the nervous system. It's not your organs. It's not, it's the person in front of you. And everything that is associated with that person is associated with that person and no matter how they're feeling. Right. And so, um, you know, one of my favorite quotes from uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza is thoughts are the language of the mind and emotions are the language of the body. And so that's one thing that, you know, people, we, we have these metaphors that we say all the time. Well, that feels terrible. You know, like uh, I have the weight of the world on my shoulders you know, like that guy's a pain in the neck, like all this different stuff. My heart hurts. I feel it in my gut. We say this stuff all the time. When somebody comes into my office, I don't ask, like, what's your brain thinking? I ask, how are you feeling? Because that's how you're feeling. You know what I mean? Like right now, everybody's scared. We're all anxious. Some of us are kind of depressed. You know what I mean? Like, especially, um, you know, I go through periods of it. I've been keeping myself so busy, but, um, uh, you know, going through periods where I understand that my profession is very socially interactive and all of a sudden I'm cut off cold turkey and now I can't work on people anymore. I can't coach them anymore. I can't do anything anymore. Just the next day, you know, like the next day I'm just, Well, I guess I'm at home indefinitely, you know, and so how does that make you feel? It's heavy. And this is the first time in recent memory where the whole entire planet feels this way at the same time, you know, it's heavy duty. And so there's, yeah, it's just, there's a lot to unpack with these humans. And I think that, you know, your methodology is like opening the door. And everything else that we do is just sticking the key in the hole, you know, but once you open the door, you're like, holy shit, there's a whole neighborhood out here. And then this neighborhood connects to other neighborhoods and this, these other neighborhoods are part of a city, which is part of a state, which is a part of a country. And they're so like, you can go so deep into it. It's just crazy. And so if you have your mind open to that, you can really make a difference in people and you can really make a difference in yourself and you can just blow your own damn mind every single day. You're working on people. It's amazing.
1: It is. It's, you know, to this day, I am continually surprised on how people's process and their availability to make change with what seems like such little input it's like if you think about um homeopathy now i know that homeopathy has been debunked as a medical model but there's but there's one aspect that 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 is true and that is we want to use the least amount that creates the greatest change. This is is just like um, what we would call efficiency in our training, using the least amount of energy to create the task at hand, to accomplish the task at hand. And so when we cue in the nervous system appropriately, It instantaneously changes with very seemingly little intervention. The process to get to that point can be quite involved. But once we give that little bit of a shift in lens, change in perception, the nervous system goes, oh, well, I really don't need that coping strategy, do I?
0: No, and it's, uh, man. And then, so the other thing that happens is the further I get into this practice that you've taught me, the more I understand how weird human beings are. And the more I start to think it's amazing. We made it this far. It's amazing. Like there's, like you can immediately tell the type of person that has a victim type of mindset. Because once you start nailing down these events that are, that are um, associated with their pain, they immediately start making excuses for those events instead of acknowledging those events. That's one that I had very recently, where I'm like, this is what's going on. Um, this is the emotion that's associated with that. This is where it's presenting. And this is why. And they start making these excuses. Well, I was this or that. or And it's just so interesting. And so, you know, you ask, is it, is it safe to clear? Is it safe to address this? And you get the affirmative and the go-ahead. And then you do, but they immediately go back to safety, right? And their safety is being the victim. So I find that a majority of those people that come to me were heavily re- heavily referred and influenced by somebody else. They didn't come to me willingly. Because they, that's one of those examples where these dysfunctions and these associations have become a pillar of who they are as a person. And whether it's beneficial for them or not, they tend to stick with that because that's what they know and that's what they're comfortable with. And that's when you have to understand as a practitioner that you can do your best And you could probably make this person feel better, but you're not going to make them feel best because they are putting the roadblocks on that.
1: Well, this happens a lot. And and these are unconscious coping strategies.
0: Mm.
1: Whereas um, there are, there are emotional scars that are compartmentalized and packed away because they're too painful to unpack. They may be pre-verbal. They may be, memories from being in the womb. um, We don't know. And it may not be in our scope of practice or our ethical boundaries to poke at that and to help those people. Yeah. And that's unfortunate because we're, we're in this to help people. Yeah. Though we can't help everyone. And that's just, you, you know, it's an unfortunate reality. Um, I remember as a young body worker, I had a, a client come to me that um, uh, she was about 10 years younger than I am. So she would be in her 70s now. And she, was, she grew up in the 50s and she was a crib baby. Her parents didn't let her out of the crib so that she could acquire the developmental movement patterning that we need to develop so that we can be upright, biped, and have a normal walking gait. At the time, I was working with this person and i was using you know the manual muscle testing tricks to have a conversation with this person's nervous system so that that nervous system could learn a new way of organization it had zero effect and it's because there was some preverbal trauma that happened Because this human being didn't get to experience the developmental movement that was necessary to progress into a functioning human being. I was unable to help that person. And it made me really recognize, oh, I might have a great toolbox, but that doesn't mean that I can, can, you know, work with every problem.
0: Yeah. So interesting, um, so I'm trying to remember the order in which these go, but there's a guy, his name is Trevor Moad, and he's a uh mental conditioning coach for um a myriad of different professional teams and he was talking about the concept of what you were just saying, which is um you know unconscious um God, I can't remember what it is, unconscious and conscious, but there's some people that are aware that they have a problem, but they're not willing to address what it is. And then there's other people that um, have a problem and they know what it is, but they're not willing to do anything about it. And then there's other people like the ones that I was just describing where they are aware of their problem, but they are convinced that they can never change and that they'll always be this way. And then there's other people who are really fluid. And these are the people that you can really help out. These are the ones where they come in. They're like, this is my problem. This is what I have. This is what's going on. You're like, cool. This is what it is. I'm like, oh, great. Now I feel better. And then that's it. You know what I mean? So it's uh, it's really un- important to, and I realized this early on, understand the psychology of human beings the best that we can in order to help them the best that we can. Because a lot of the symptoms that I see are psychological in nature. It's pretty rare that we have a um, a acute biological problem. You know, sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. But, you know, for the most part, the people that are coming into me are stressed out and you know, have all kinds of just this emotional baggage that they don't know that they're carrying around. And that's a pretty heavy load.
1: It is, and we can also think of it as our structure is a reflection of our mind. Mm. If we have a structural issue, an adaptation, if we're experiencing pain, if we've experienced trauma, injury, all that is registered in the mind, and it becomes a feedback loop. Most of that feedback loop is at the unconscious level. One of my teachers, a neurologist, said to me, the brain is processing 5 billion bits, and no, it was 9 billion, 9 billion bits of information per second. Yet, we're only consciously aware of several thousand.
0: Which is overwhelming, even if you think about it. <laughs>
1: That's so overwhelming. Right. That so much is happening on an unconscious level. Right. And yet, we are responding to all those inputs. All those inputs are coloring our experience without us being aware of how or why we're responding to the world around us the way that we are. This actually is the main benefit of having training. And when I mean training, I mean training in martial arts, physical culture, um, art therapy, whatever your training is in. Because what we're doing is we're we're toggling our experience in such a way that we're gaining, I don't know how to quantify it, some bits of this information that we didn't have conscious um, relationship to we're gaining more relationship to our experience. This is why the kind of um, drills that we look at in martial arts from static to dynamic, when we start to look at that spectrum of those drills and how we're recovering bits of movement that we have lost for various reasons, That recovery process, when we recover those blocks of movements, then our brain has access to that again. Then our brain has access to assemble those individual building blocks in a unique way, and our movement improves. Our skill sets expand. Our experience expands. This is a complete luxury of having a an environment in which we can train and practice. Because in real life, we don't have that luxury. We either have developed those skill sets so that we can respond to the situation at hand, or we can't, and we create a coping strategy to respond. Right. And if we don't have those skills, that coping strategy in some way is going to be maladaptive it's going to have a descending spiral of the way that we respond in some in some manner
0: right and so uh, you can really understand that in our current situation that we're experiencing globally right so you know february is when everybody is like hey coronavirus this is a problem And then it started creeping into March and they're like, okay, it's showing up in America now. And then every day you just wake up and you'll be like, okay, so what are we doing now? And so I think that that was, um, my coping strategy for that was largely based off of jujitsu training because you can't make a decision unless you know what's going on. And so in jujitsu, especially when you're sparring with somebody, that decision that you're making changes moment to moment. And if you're focused on the arm bar, then you're going to get choked. And so every single day, you just wake up and be like, What are we doing now? Okay, we might close in a week. What's our strategy? How do we handle this? Where do we go after this? Where do we go if this doesn't happen? Where do we go if our gym shuts down? How does that work? I don't have. How do I start giving people assessments online? How do I start coaching people online? How do I provide new products for people? How do I make myself viable? How do I keep doing this? How does this keep going? How long are we done? Like, don't worry about how long it's going to take. It could be June. It could be July. We have no idea. This is an unprecedented event. We have no idea how to deal with it. We're dealing with it the best we can. And there's people that are, you know, they're bringing politics into this situation. Well, Donald Trump this or Donald Trump that. I'm like, cool, what was your plan? Is your plan better than Donald Trump's? Like he's trying to run a whole country. You're just trying to figure out if you can stay at work or not. You know what I mean? So like it's this is an impossible situation for everybody to deal with and you have to deal with the variables as they present themselves. And so as you were alluding to earlier, there are people that don't have That martial arts experience that were just telling me, hey, my business is going under. I can't, it's not going to survive this. I'm going to shut down. There's, you know, gyms all over Arizona that have just shut their doors and are starting to sell their equipment off. You know what I mean? Because they couldn't, they didn't, they didn't have survival strategies in place. They didn't start thinking Worst case scenario, best case scenario, and every scenario in the middle, you know? So that's uh it's really interesting that you say that because of our current situation, and how a lot of people are handling it, you know? So like, you know, that's the first thing I asked you is what are you working on right now? And you named like 15 things, you know? So that's like, you're handling it the best way that you can. And maybe eight of those things will work and, and maybe, seven of them won't, but you have more irons in the fire than ever before. And some of them are going to pan out and some of them won't, but that's how it works. You know, it's like if you're um, sparring a jiu-jitsu and you throw up an arm bar, that doesn't work. Cool. What next? Oh, I have an omoplata here. Cool. That didn't work either. But now I have side control. Now what are we doing? Okay. I'm going to grab the arm, take the base away. You know what I mean? There's all these different options that you have based off of the experience that you have, which is high-level problem-solving under duress, and I think that's one reason why martial arts is so imperative for people, because, you know, there's these situations of high stress where people are just buying the shit out of toilet paper, instead of understanding that this isn't a survival strategy. (laughs) So,
1: yeah, that, the toilet paper thing is ridiculous.
0: It doesn't make any sense, and we're three weeks into this, and there's still no toilet paper.
1: You know In November, I was in Nepal, check trekking. Yeah. You know, we were given for a toilet paper? A bucket of water <laughs>
0: right? I mean, in in most modern homes, the shower is right by the toilet. You can figure it out. You know what I mean? Come on. It's a thing. God dang. Man. All right. So that's actually something that I want to hear about is your trip to Nepal. How was that? Oh,
1: oh my goodness. It was amazing. So we flew from Denver to San Francisco to Chengdu, China, to Nepal, to Kathmandu. That was like 30 hours of travel. Yeah. That was kind of heinous. Yeah. But uh fortunately, in my wife's brilliant optimism, she upgraded our seats from coach to business. And we ended up having a full row and it was comfy and it was great. And so we were able to get up multiple, you know, multiple times and and stretch and do do a little joint mobility and and you know keep from getting um, locked up and or getting a blood clot or any of these heinous things that can happen on long flights. Right. So we get to Kathmandu. And it's culture shock. Yeah. So Kathmandu is one of the poorest cities in the world. It's a third world country. A developing nature. Nation but there's something unique and that is people are happy like they're happy to be living and to not really having anything the pollution was a problem yeah and you know as being privileged and coming into a poor country with enough opulence that we were able to stay at a nice hotel. It was like an in in, in oasis. And so we were in this oasis for a few days before the trekking adventure started. Getting out of Kathmandu and driving through the city took eight hours. <laughs> it's scary crazy. There's something that's unique about the driving in Nepal. The rules of the road aren't so much as rules as suggestions. People have this way of driving that I call, it would never work in America, where they're mutually cooperative With each other there's mutual yielding everybody stays moving but everybody's also being considerate of the other person so it's not the me i'm in my car and i'm going to run that red light regardless of anybody you know it's 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 a really interesting thing and so this kind of mutual cooperation it looks like chaos but it works and there's very few accidents, and so we get out into the countryside. And um, this is where we go from a bus to a four by four. Like, uh, we, uh, in our trekking team, we, it took two four by four um, uh, trucks to take all our gear and stuff. And so we head out to the out to the country. And this is another two days of driving on these four-by-four roads to get out to the country where our trek is going to start. Along the way, there is a single-lane road that is carved on a 2,000-foot cliff that we traverse. Talk about ho-ho. And then there are cars that are coming the other way. And these drivers are so good. They're able to pass one another by doing this weird thing where they're going very slowly, but everybody's making a little inch at a time movement. And they manage to pass each other on a one lane road where two, two cars are doing it. And it's like, literally one wheel is like, virtually on the edge of the cliff. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's mentally crazy. it's
1: completely draining. But, yeah. You know, these people are used to it and right. they have such a happy mentor. They're so happy.
0: Well, and that's a that's a constant threat response for 2 days, right?
1: Oh, oh yeah. Well,
0: well so you're sure. just like <laughs> scared to death literally. That's crazy.
1: And so we get to our destination, we start our, 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 um, our hike. And it's kind of a funny thing. There's no distance signs. Everything's by hour. Oh, it's a two-hour walk to this, to the next tea house. Or it's a three-hour walk to, this, to the next village from the tea house or whatever it is. The funny thing is, these arbitrary times are like for very fast hikers. Yeah. You know, Sherpas are like extremely fast. You know, they can, they can run under load that you and I couldn't even keep up. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's amazing. And when you're in the country and you're seeing um, different porters and carriers carrying tools and materials, it's unbelievable because there's no transportation other than human powered or donkey.
2: Yeah.
1: So you, you see people that have spools of, of pipe that they're carrying. You see people that are carrying furniture, it's tied onto their back. And there's one common thing when, you, when you're passing these people and, and, and um, saying namaste, is that they're happy. They're happy that, that their life, they have purpose. Yeah. They call it joyful effort. And that was just amazing. Yeah. Feel that. We get to our destination after Four days of trekking, which is a town um, in Fu. Um, It's a village. It's at about fourteen thousand five hundred feet. The only crop that they can grow is barley. So it's a it's a poor community, yet it's very rich in the resource that there is. The 108th Monastery. And so we, we had a, a private guided tour of the monastery. We were um, given an opportunity to actually go into and participate into um, a ceremony, which is very rare for Westerners. Now, when I say the hundred and eight, this is about, there is, um, when when the Buddha, passed on his legacy to what's known as the first Panchalama. The first Panchalama traveled and um, conscribed a series of monasteries to be built. And this was the last one, Hmm. the 108th monastery. And so it had a a lot of significance. Yeah. Um, This is a place where, um, when um, the Dalai Lama, Left Tibet. This is where the Dalai Lama went. Was to this hundred monastery. Nice. Um, and so that was that was very very potent. Um, there was and then and then there was the hike out, of course, and then there was the culture shock of being high up in the mountains. The rivers are literally glacier fed. And I don't know if you've ever seen a milky glacier river, but nope. it is this unbelievable turquoise that is not a clear turquoise because of the sediment, but it's it, the potency of the water that's why they call it mother's milk. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's what, it's what feeds all the farmlands um, downstream. The hike out was amazing. There is this one point where we passed people that were working on the road and they had Hardened rock rods that were with chiseled points on them, that they were using a mallet and drilling holes. And as they drill enough holes, then the rock can break. As, as there were men on scaffolding, do that, there were other crews that were sharpening and reforming and rehardening those tools so that when a tool dulls they can they get a sharper tool and so the way that the teamwork was working and then when when we would walk underneath and they'd all stop for a minute and wave and talk you know namaste and everybody's namaste which is which is basically peace be with you yeah um, just a phenomenal experience really to 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 see how another culture lives—it's so different than our American culture—and it was, frankly, culture shock to come back. Yeah, you know,
0: and, and that's there's a lot of military that speak that way too, where they 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 believe that everybody needs to go to a different country and experience a different country so they can see how good we have it, because you know. Here we have, we have so much that we have to manufacture reasons to be upset about things. You know what I mean? And like these people, like you said, are just taking pride in the fact that they have something to do and that it's benefiting other people. You know, like we have, we live in, um, man, it's just good. Like the. That we live in a place where, you know, one of the, one of the times when I was going out, um, this was the night that we got our um, announcement from our mayor that we had to shut down our gym. And, um, you know, I was going around and I was trying to find some isopropyl alcohol or some um, hand sanitizer because I was still um, doing some. Uh, massage work for another company in town on a uh, an elite runners that are from Bend, Oregon, and so you know one of the things is like, hey, we have this virus going around, but look how clean I am, right? So I was trying to find it. I didn't expect to find anything, um, but it was really depressing on at how exasperated and defeated people were trying to find stuff that they needed because we are used to such abundance that we can't stand to not have stuff. And I was walking through the grocery store and there was these, these two individuals that were so upset that they couldn't find their brand of two liter soda to buy. And I was like, what are you talking about? Drink water. Like, be healthier. This, you know, this virus goes after people like you that are arguing about soda who cares like this is insane you know what I mean and there's these people that are just so joyful to be sharpening tools so that the people that they're working with can effectively do their job you know and it's like we go from yeah I could see I could see how that would be pretty shocking and just even even understanding this within myself, you know, like one of the things that I miss is, you know, obviously going to the gym, but I have two coffee shops that I stop at on the way to the gym and both those coffee shops are closed. And I'm like, well, now what do I do? Drink coffee, dude, or drink water. Like you can make coffee, you know, (laughs) like, what are you doing? (laughs) You know, it's just super, it's super weird. And uh, you know, Like really having to, you know, like I said, hunker down because I am getting an income and it is paying my base level of bills, but that's all it's paying. I don't have any extra, you know what I mean? So I can't go and just buy frivolous stuff anymore at the moment. But there's people, like you said, that just will hike forever. Like you're an American, you're on the struggle bus just cruising through this hike and there's a guy just stomping down the trail with furniture on his back because that's what he does. And he's super happy. <laughs> oh, cool. I get to deliver this to Larry over here. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you're just like, Oh my God, I got to go to work or whatever our stupid American problem is. You know what I mean? That's
1: yeah. First um, world problems.
0: For sure. And you know, there's a, um, I had this concept where people, Need to, they need, they need adversity in order to be happy, in order to appreciate what they have, right? And so I have, so there's people that will create adversity if they don't have any. Hence, like the people that call the cops on, you know, two black people having coffee at a coffee shop. Like they don't have any problems in their life whatsoever. So they have to create this problem. You know what I mean? And it's just a weird world that we live in. We're so weird. See, it could circles back. How do we make it this far? We're so weird. I don't understand. <laughs> right on. You
1: know, you're talking about something that's kind of interesting. And that is, if we start looking at from the perspective of movement, mm-hmm. we get bored doing the same movement over and over again. We hit a plateau. Yes. Our nervous system craves sophistication, meaning we crave to keep challenging ourselves. You know, look at the kids that are doing parkour these days. Twenty years ago, it would have been unfathomable. Yeah. But it's because we crave sophistication. We crave continually to challenging ourselves so that we can grow. You know, some of that, I think, is related to the domestication of being human. Mm -hmm. Um, When we're a wild animal, a wild human, and, and we have to contend with basic survival, living in a natural environment, moving in that natural environment, that's enough stimulation But in a culture where we have running water, a roof over our head, that's semi-permanent—not like a cave or a grass hut— or we have to find other ways to challenge ourselves.
0: But then that's why we invented gyms, right? And that's why you—that's why people are struggling so much with what to do and how to stay fit in this current pandemic is because well now i can't go to my place where i do that thing well so what what do you do like you can't really figure that out like you know the amount of stuff i've seen online about well i can't work out without a barbell oh god I should probably figure that out
1: yeah so who's going to take apart their table saw attach that motor onto their bicycle and create a generator so they can so that they can you know Make their morning coffee. Right. (laughs) Right? No, really. I mean, you know, ingenuity ingenuity is the mother of invention. And it's like, well, that energy expenditure at the gym is a luxury. Yeah. Right? Now, what if you have to use that energy for survival? Right. How are are you going to reformat what you're going to do? Whether it's, chopping wood because you no longer have the gasoline to run your you know your your engine powered hydraulic wood splitter right (laughs) (laughs) right you know you start to really start to look at that yeah start to look at that
0: right fascinating we're so weird all right my friend um what a great conversation thank you for coming on with me i appreciate it
1: hey you bet jesse it's always phenomenal to spend time with you
0: absolutely and where can people find you where can people find everything that you're up to because like i said you have a whole bunch of irons in the fire and i think everybody needs to take advantage of that and be a part of that so where can people find all that stuff
1: oh on facebook our our page is dna dash assessment that is also um our website uh dna-assessment.com our courses are courses.dna-assessment.com on instagram my handle is movement mantra 108 and my personal page on facebook is uh joseph schwartz um I love interacting with people and hearing about what you're up to and how the work that I can do can assist you in your own process.
0: Yeah, man. Yeah. So get on that, people. And so you said you had uh, something coming out this Friday, right? This Friday, which is what?
1: Uh, five days.
0: Yeah, six five, days. six days. Yeah.
1: This Friday? Yes. um, It's going to be a mini seminar. It's a two-hour seminar on redefining manual muscle testing. Manual muscle testing has several problems that we have to unpack.
0: Yeah. And And, uh, what time is that on Friday?
1: uh, 10 to noon Mountain Standard Time.
0: Okay. Okay. Cool. I'm on it. I'll be there. I'm going to put that in my schedule right now. All All right, my friend. Thank you so much again for the conversation. Love you, brother. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Jesse.